So as we get into Mark chapter 11 uh, and looking into this next section of verses here, this passage actually contains some uh, controversial scenes of Jesus, scenes that some would rather not talk about or would try to explain away in some way. But there is nothing inconsistent with the way Jesus is presented here from the rest of the Gospel of Mark or from the other Gospels. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. Now the next day, when they had come out of Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something to eat on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for if it was not for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus, Jesus said to it, "Let no one eat from you ever again." And his disciples heard of it, heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry, carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because of all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening came, when evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to the mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that these things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Let's bow for a brief word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for this time that we are now able to look into your word. Father, this can be a difficult passage to understand. There's things going on here that's maybe just a little bit deeper than what we just initially read. Help us to see what's going on. Help us to put the, the pieces together with the rest of Scripture. Open our hearts and minds. Give me the words to use, the correct words to use. Help me not just to rely on my own thoughts and opinions, but to stand on your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we've got some interesting things going on in here. Um, you can see I've called this a fruitless tree and a failed temple, and you can kind of see why here. But first, we're going to look at this kind of in, in three sections. Um, if I know I've got a kind of a lot of material, so we may not get through everything today, um, but that will be all right. We'll get through most of this. A fruitless tree of the nation, verses 12 to 14 is where we're going to pick up. We're going to look first at verses 12 to 14, and we see a fruitless tree of the nation. 
We're going to jump right into this in the verse 12. Now, the next day when they had come out of Bethany, he was hungry. This is the morning after Jesus' triumphal entry. You'll remember, if you look back into verse 11, and when they came into Jerusalem, he went to the temple, he looked around, and evening had come, and he left and went to Bethany. Well, here in verse 12, we pick up, now the next day. Now the next day, they had come out from Bethany, and he was hungry. They were walking back to Jerusalem from Bethany on their way, getting closer to returning to Jerusalem. And we have this very indicative mark or comment here, Jesus was hungry. This, first of all, this is another definite reminder of the humanity of Jesus. He was hungry. He felt hunger. He needed to have food. He needed sustenance because of the human side of his nature. Now, some have tried to argue that Jesus and the Twelve didn't stay with Lazarus and his sisters in Bethany because they certainly would have had some food before heading out for the day. But some sources indicate that the first meal of the day wasn't necessarily taken until more mid-morning, so his hunger may be understandable. So, they're on the road back to Jerusalem from Bethany. They're getting closer. Jesus is hungry and Mark gives us the rest of the scene here in verse 13. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he goes over to it. At some distance near the side of the road, Jesus sees a fig tree with leaves. And that's somewhat promising. So he approaches it looking for figs. Now figs typically produce, fig trees, excuse me, typically produce leaves right before summer but after the fruit has developed. So, to come, so there is a thought that there may be some, uh, some fruit on the tree. Jesus goes over, he investigates the tree for fruit, but doesn't find it, find any. Mark alone mentions that figs were out of season. He says this was not the season for figs. And we can conclude that this may have just been common knowledge in the area, but Mark included it for his readers who didn't, weren't necessarily in the area, in the region. So then we have this very interesting response in verse 14. In response, Jesus says to it, talking to the tree, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now since Jesus didn't find these figs, he pronounces a curse. On the tree. He says to the tree, No one may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And Mark notes that the disciples heard this pronouncement. They they had heard it. Okay, so what, what is going on in these verses? Now some accuse Jesus of a rash fit of anger or an irrational expectation of for fruit out of season or of injustice. This is problematic for a theology that has a high Christology. If you have a high view of Christ and, and the high theology of Christ, this is a bit problematic. One author notes some of these accusations. 
He records that Joseph Klossner wrote, It was a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong. T.W. Manson said, It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more useful expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. And as it stands is simply incredible. William Barclay said, The story does not seem worthy of Jesus. There seems to be a petulance in it. And the atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell accused Jesus of vindictive fury and wrote of our Lord's character, I cannot myself feel that, that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. They, these are some of the accusations out there concerning this event. Now, others try to explain the account, assuming Mark misunderstood the timing of the event and misplaced it in his, in his gospel, in his writing. So this comment that the figs were out of season is an error, was erroneous. But this calls in the veracity and the truthfulness of Scripture. Mark's parenthetical statement about the season is a clue to alert the readers to look for something a little bit more symbolic here. There's more than just what we're seeing going on here. This was likely a deliberate symbolic act by Jesus. Nothing in this passage indicates that Jesus lost his temper or good judgment. He did something out of the ordinary to emphasize a point. In one sense, this was a visual parable or an object lesson. Likely, this fig tree symbolized faithless, fruitless Israel. Or at least the religious leaders who had, fa who had twisted and failed The Old Testament, uh, on a number of occasions, uh, uses a fig tree to symbolize Israel. We see this in Jeremiah 8 and 29. We see this in Hosea 9 a couple of times. We see this in Joel chapter 1, Micah chapter 7. The fig tree is also used as an object of judgment on Israel as, as well. We see this in Isaiah 34 verse 4 and Hosea chapter 2 verse 12. One author suggests that Mark's statement about the, seasons, the season of figs may have been an allusion to Micah chapter 7, verse 1, or Jeremiah 8, 13. Uh, he, he comments here, it could mean that at the time Jesus spoke, Israel was not producing the fruit God expected. Israel, like the fig tree, was barren when Jesus came to it. This understanding would, easily, would ease some of the difficulty. Now, Israel, like this fig tree, full of leaves, looked good. It looked healthy. It looked fruitful. But, the fig, but like the fig tree, there was no 
fruit. Israel was boastful and proud of being the favored of God, but had no spiritual fruit. The Jewish religious system of the time was worthless hypocrisy, especially of the elite of the religious leaders. This pronouncement against the fig tree was a lesson to Jesus' disciples about his condemnation of hypocrisy and indicated that Israel was no longer going to be God's primary instrument for his purpose. Mark's comment of the disciples hearing Jesus' statement first marks them as eyewitnesses to Jesus' actions and comments, but that they also may have also understood that Israel was being set aside. Now, whether they actually put everything together, they may have, they may have said, wait, fig tree, and maybe have put some of these things together. Maybe they didn't put these things together until after the resurrection, but they may have started going, wait, you're cursing this fig tree, and call back some of these other prophecies, and that may have put a few things together. If they did understand this, this would have been horrifying and perplexing to them. Now, the rest of what goes on with the fig tree picks up down in verse 20, but we're not going to combine everything here. We'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. We're going to get into verses 15 to 19. And in verses 15 to 19, we see praying at the temple. P-R-E-Y-I-N-G. Praying at the temple. P-R-E-Y-I-N-G. Praying at the temple. First, let's look at verses 15 to 17. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. So what do we have here? They have uh, they've made it to Jerusalem. They have entered the temple complex again. Now this is the... This is what's known as the second temple. This was actually a refurbished second temple. This is the temple of Herod. This was built by Herod the Great, mostly. Solomon's temple was destroyed in 586 BC by Babylon, which was replaced with a much smaller, less grand temple following the return from exile, built under Zerubbabel the governor in about 515. Construction of this temple, Herod's temple, began around 20 or 19 BC, and the inner shrine, the Holy of Holies, was built in 18 months. The rest of the main building in 10 years. The outer courts were finally completed in AD 64. Six years before the entire 
Hades' largest outer court, known as the Court of the Gentiles, the only area that Gentiles were allowed. Jesus began driving out those who were doing business there in the temple. That verb to drive out is the word commonly used for the exercising or expelling of demons. Jesus was not politely asking them to leave. He was forcing them out. Grabbing them by the scruff of the neck. Grabbing them by the back of their belt loops and tossing them out. Get out. Those that bought and sold, those traveling to Jerusalem were expected to bring an acceptable sacrifice that needed to pass a rigorous inspection of the, for the defect or blemish, especially for Passover or these other festivals. Many chose the convenience of purchasing one upon arriving at Jerusalem from the temple-approved sellers. Now, doves are mentioned specifically, or pigeons, or turtle doves. Pigeons were an acceptable animal for sacrifice in most cases, especially for the poor. If you were to go back to Luke chapter 2, when, uh, when Joseph and Mary brought the baby Jesus to the temple for the dedication, they brought a pair of doves. Because they weren't rolling with it. They weren't rolling in it. They were poorer. That was an acceptable sacrifice, and it was one they could afford. However, these sellers, backed by the temple priests, backed by the chief priests, backed by the Sanhedrin, charged a ridiculous markup for these animals. Some estimate the charge was 16 times normal pricing. That's 1,600%. As an example, if we could say that two pigeons would normally cost 25 cents for the pair, they now cost $4 for the pair. It's like buying concessions at a major sporting event. But there's also this mention of these money changers. These money changers also had an outrageous exchange rate. These vendors would exchange the foreign currency, the Greek or Roman currency. Why? Because they had the, a, a person symbolized on them. That would be idolatrous to accept at the temple. Therefore, it's not acceptable. It had to be changed into Jewish or Tyrian currency, which would be acceptable. And every Jewish male, 20 and older, had to pay a temple tax. But only that Jewish or Tyrian shekel was acceptable to pay that. So they had to exchange their Greek or Roman coins for that. And you can see how they would lace that It, is, it was kind of confusing to me thinking through this of how the people put up with this 
when they knew the tax collectors were doing something similar. The tax collectors, yes, were traitors to the nation because they were working for Rome, but they could have been very easily having this massive rate also because they were skimming off. That's why Matthew was, it was a shock to call Matthew. That's why Jesus eating with Zacchaeus was, an, it was a big thing. But the people were okay with this at the temple. So Jesus flips over these tables. He knocks the sellers of doves off their, off their seats. He flips over the tables of the money changers. Their coins are going all over. Jesus also seems to have taken control of the court of Gentiles because he keeps those that would seek to cut through the court as a thoroughfare out. It wouldn't, he wouldn't allow anyone carrying wares through the court. This practice, sorry, some were using the outer court of the temple as a shortcut of getting from one end part of the city to the other. This practice reveals the irreverent attitude toward the temple and the court of the Gentiles in particular. Some have even suggested that Jesus may have placed his followers at the entrance to the court just to keep that travel down to keep that, uh, that demand in place. The Sanhedrin and the chief priests had let the court of the Gentiles be turned into a religious bazaar or marketplace, quite possibly very recently. But that was full of, it was full of bribery, extortion, greed, and dishonesty. The righteous Son of God tolerated the defilement no longer and expressed God's holy justice by clearing out the merchants and the money changers. The day before Jesus had entered as king of Israel, this day he entered as God's high priest, pronouncing judgment of the perversion of the temple worship. Jesus' bold actions brought the crowd together and he took the opportunity to teach. Mark notes that Jesus taught. He doesn't record the whole teaching, and Jesus likely taught longer than what is recorded in here. But Jesus' statements, as recorded, give us the subjects of what he taught. He taught on the purpose of the temple and how this divine purpose had been perverted. This remark of, is it not written, implies the following quote was still on record and authoritative. So what Jesus is quoting is the last part of Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. Isaiah 56, verses 6 to 7. And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath, and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 
while all three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this quotation, only Mark records the final phrase, for all peoples, for all nations. Isaiah's passage records his prediction that Gentiles would have a place among the people of God alongside the Jews in the temple of God. But in Herod's temple, they were excluded from the inner courts. And with the court of the Gentiles was was essentially turned into a bazaar with all the noise, commotion, and stench that goes along with one, the Gentiles were deprived of the one place in the temple they could worship God. Think about what had just been what the place had been turned into. It was the court of the Gentiles. It was the place where they could come and worship and pray and be part of the services. But over here we have stalls for lambs and bulls and goats. We've got pigeons over here. We've got money changers arguing over rates. And we have people walking back and forth, cutting through this, cutting through to make their journey around easier. Got animals. What goes along with animals? Food and waste, right? And this is where I'm supposed to come and pray. Jesus is clearing out of the merchants literally and symbolically provided a place the Gentile a place for the Gentiles in God's temple but this was not his primary purpose Jesus also alludes to Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11 when he says that they had turned it into a den of robbers Jeremiah 7, 11 says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now, we often think that the phrase den of robbers, den of thieves, is referencing the merchants and the money changers. Right? Because how dare they come and do business in God's house? But the den is where the thieves go to hide, not where they go to steal. The chief priests and the scribes used the religious services and the temple to cover their sin and hypocrisy. Jeremiah 7 verses 1 through 16 warned the people of the day that the physical temple warned the people of that day that the physical temple was not a sign of God's blessing. Just because the temple's here doesn't mean I'm blessing you. Jeremiah 7, 12 through 15 records God's warning them that he would destroy Solomon's temple like he destroyed the shrine or the tabernacle in Shiloh. We're not going to take the time to to read there, but I want to read this passage from the Bible Knowledge Commentary where it explains, which explains this portion in Jeremiah. The, The author writes, Jeremiah pointed to Israel's past to expose the fallacy of believing that the mere presence of God's temple would avert disaster. 
he asked the crowd to remember the place in Shiloh where the tabernacle of God had first dwelt. Joshua 18, 1. Think also of 1 Samuel 1, 3 and 1 Samuel 4, 3-4. They were to observe what God did to it because of Israel's wickedness. The Bible is silent on the fate of Shiloh, but after the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, 1 Samuel 4, 10-11, the priests had evidently fled to Nob, and we see them there in 1 Samuel 22, verse 11. And Shiloh was abandoned as Israel's central worship center. Archaeological studies also indicate that the village of Shiloh was destroyed about 1050 B.C., probably by the Philistines. The point of Jeremiah's message was that what God did to Shiloh, he would also do to the temple. Now, we referenced 1 Samuel 4, just to remind ourselves a little bit. Philistines and Israel was going to war. They go out, they lose. Israel goes, wait, why did we lose? We don't have the ark. We need our good luck charm. They go get the ark. They go into battle. They lose. Phineas and Hophni are killed. The ark is captured. The news gets back to Shiloh. Eli falls off his stool, breaks his neck and dies. And, Shiloh, and they, the, the, the priests at least flee the area. Jeremiah's point is God allowed the ark to be captured. God allowed Shiloh to be destroyed. You think the temple is going to protect you? The idea here in Mark 11, with Jesus quoting this passage of Jeremiah, or at least alluding to it, seems to suggest that God would do the same to the temple of his day that he did to Solomon's temple. Continuing on in verse 18, And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because of all of the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. All this commotion and teaching certainly got the attention of the people and the religious leaders. The chief priests and scribes had become a threat to their way of life. Excuse me. This commotion got the attention of the people and religious leaders, the, the chief priests and the scribes. Jesus had become a threat to their way of life, and he called them out. So they continued to find a way to destroy him. It says they also feared him. Likely they feared him because the people were astonished by his teaching and were infatuated with him. They likely also feared that Rome would see the stirring of a revolt and come down hard on the nation. The people were astonished by Jesus' teaching, likely refers to both his teaching in general but also the symbolic teaching and the expelling of the merchants from the temple. Jesus' teaching was always fresh and powerful. 
It appears in this passage that Jesus remained in control of the court of the Gentiles until the coming of evening. At least this one day, or at least maybe the afternoon, at least this one section, this time of that, that time, the court of the Gentiles was returned to what it should have been, the one place in the temple where they would have been welcomed to pray and worship. So what is going on with everything that we've just looked through? Well, it was commonly thought that Messiah would come and purge the Gentiles from the temple. But Jesus came and cleansed the temple for Gentiles. Instead of being the light to the nations, instead of doing missionary work, if we can borrow that phrase, the established Judaism of works and tradition obscured what God had intended, what the temple was representing. They obscured God. The Jews viewed the temple as a guarantee of security from God no matter what they did. And as long as they participated in the rituals of the Mosaic Law and the traditional teaching, they thought they were assured acceptance by God. And many thought that Jews alone were acceptable to God. Warren Wearsby wrote, This religious market was set up in the court of the Gentiles, the one place where the Jews should have been busy doing serious missionary work. If a Gentile visited the temple and saw what the Jews were doing in the name of the true God, he would never want to believe what they taught. The Jews might not have permitted idols of wood and stone in their temple, but there were idols there just the same. The court of the Gentiles should have been a place of praying, P-R-A-Y, P-R-A-Y-I-N-G, but instead it was a place of praying, P-R-E-Y-I-N-G, a place of praying and paying. Now I mentioned before that reforming the temple to a proper place of worship and prayer was not Jesus' primary purpose. I think he was... He, had, he was coming to show it was being abolished. It was coming under judgment. Like the cursing of the fig tree, this was a symbolic act, a visual parable that denounced the sin of the religious leaders and of the nation. Jesus, God's high priest, showed in a deliberate visual action that Israel was being set aside. Jesus expelling the merchants who were authorized by the chief priests shows that he was rejecting the chief priests and by extension judging the nation. Both actions of Jesus, the cursing of the, cursing of the tree and the expulsion from the temple were dramatic actions in the tradition of Old Testament prophets. Isaiah walked around naked and barefoot, symbolizing the stripping of Egypt. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. Jeremiah retrieved a ruined loincloth that symbolized the humiliation of Judah. Chapter 13, 1 to 11. 
He also broke a clay jar to symbolize Judah's breaking, chapter 19, verses 1 through 3 and 10 to 11. He also wore a yoke around his neck, symbolizing the enslavement to the king of Babylon, chapter 27, 1 to 5, and chapter 28, 10 to 17. We could also add Hosea's marrying of a prostitute, symbolizing the nation's unfaithfulness to God and God's faithful love and honoring of the covenant. Jesus' actions here were no different, no stranger than any of these things that the prophets of the Old Testament had done. There was more going on than what was just meeting the eye. The temple was no longer the place to come to God, to find God's presence. Jesus referred to his body as a temple in John 2.19. Jesus told the Samaritan woman that soon God, who was spirit, would be worshipped in spirit and in truth, for the Father was seeking such people. John 4.21-24. He very specifically tells her a time is coming that worship in Jerusalem or on this mountain, the mountain there in Samaria, would not be where worship would be doing. You'd be worshiping in spirit and in truth. Paul reminds the Corinthian believers that the church, and by extension every believer, is the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17 and chapter 6, verses 19-20. to Our time is, a, is uh, running out, so I am going to move ahead. As we close, let's start to think to think about this. Before we puff ourselves up, with pride or think how we are so much better than those Jewish religious leaders, we should look at ourselves and our own hearts and our ministries. Warren Wiersbe gave some good questions that we should ask in consideration of this. Do the outsiders in our community think of our church buildings as houses of prayer? Are all nations welcomed there? Do we as church members flee to church on Sundays in an attempt to cover up our sins? Do we go to church in order to maintain our reputation or to worship and glorify God? If the Lord Jesus were to show up in our house of worship, what changes would he make? Closing prayer. Father, we thank you for the reminder and the truth that we have in this passage. And though it can be a difficult passage to look at, to understand what is quite going on, Father, I think we have started that and we've gotten a better understanding here. But Father, help us not to get too proud in our own minds of what we're doing here.
or how our church or, or association of churches are doing. We can, we can become blinded to our own sin and pride. Help us to keep things in perspective. And as we read this morning, as Paul warned the, the Romans, we can't let things build up too much. We can't think of ourselves too much. Because you, though you removed Israel from the plan for right now, they will be grafted in. And if we can be grafted in, we can be grafted out. Father, we, we help us to continue to be grateful. Help us to continue to be serious about our life as disciples, about how we handle the word, about how we worship. But help us to keep the main things the main things and not let secondary or third things become primary things. Give us a heart for all nations. Give us a heart for those around us. That we can continue to do the work that you have called us to, that we can work out the commission that you have given to us. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.